Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 199. The Buddha's Enlightenment Solved His Problem. We're joined this week by Sharon Salzberg to speak about real happiness and about meditation as an emerging part of secular culture. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm joined today in person. We're down in the Emory University in Atlanta, hot Atlanta as I used to refer to it back as a kid. <laughs> I'm here with Sharon Salzberg. Sharon, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with the geeks. We really appreciate it. It's good to good to talk with you again. Thank you. Yeah, and last time we interviewed you, Gwen Bell spoke with you in North Carolina. So there's some sort of trend about the Southeast and Buddhist geeks and Sharon Salzburg. It's funny. I don't come here all that often, but... <laughs> It's true. Our relationship seems to be centered here geographically. <laughs> Very strange. And obviously for people that know you, they're aware of your work, loving kindness, faith, various um, audio recordings through Sounds True, different programs. And then we wanted to speak with you a little bit about your most recent book, which is Real Happiness. It's a 28-day program. So it's a book, but it's also structured around here's how you can sort of implement uh, meditation into your life. Maybe if you could say a little bit about why you went that route as opposed to something else. Well, for one thing, people often say to me, it's like the the list of if only questions. Like, if only I didn't live in Manhattan where it's so noisy, then I could meditate. If only I could stop my thinking, then I could meditate. Or I can't do it because I can't stop my thinking. Of course, it doesn't really mean stopping your thinking, but that's the common misconception. If only I weren't so tired, I could meditate. If only I weren't so stressed out, I could meditate. And so I wanted to create an invitation, basically, to people and say, here it is. You can try it. You can certainly try it, whoever you are, whatever your life circumstance. Why not give it a try in a very practical way? I've seen the 30-day trial for software, you know, back in the day, they'd send you the disc and say, oh, really? you have this, you have the software to try for 30 days. You know, if you like it afterwards, <laughs> you can keep it. It seemed like in some ways. That's funny. <laughs> it's like the, the trial period, like check it out for a month. And, yeah, check it out. And people, I mean, they do notice changes, don't they? If they take on that kind of practice for that length of time. Yeah, I think people do notice changes when we know where to look. I think that's part of the problem is that so much of the time, either we have those ideas like I should be able to stop thinking or why am I still angry? The divorce was 20 years ago or I shouldn't feel this anymore. This guilt, this grief, whatever it is. I've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in psychotherapy to not feel this anymore. This shouldn't be here or I failed because my mind wanders or if we can be steered away from some of those ideas and misconceptions, of course, it's a lot easier and it's a lot more beautiful an experience. And then I think certainly with loving kindness practice and, and I think with a lot of practices, we will see the change in our lives, which of course is where it counts, but we might have our heart set on those great breakthrough experiences. Like I was sitting there and 15 minutes into it on Thursday, I loved myself 
totally or I forgave this person and those are great but what's really important is that our lives change and, and get happier so mm-hmm. and it seems like you spent the first part of the book even addressing a lot of the common misconceptions you were saying uh, one of the early titles was why meditate yeah, yeah. for the book yeah so it sounds like that was one of the things you really wanted to do with this book too was somehow to clear some of those things up so people didn't have that unrealistic expectation or misconception. Is that true? I think that is true. And in a way, just now it occurred to me, it could have been called Why Suffer? <laughs> you know, I mean, we do suffer, of course, in lots of different ways, but we can bring all those habits of self-judgment and incessant criticism and unreal expectation right into the meditation practice from our just our lives. And so we can be released from that kind of suffering. And it's interesting um, looking at some of the titles of your books. There's almost like a, a trend or a pattern or something here with loving kindness, of course, and then faith and now happiness. There's something, it's almost like you're covering a list of some sort, you know, one of the Buddhist lists. I was wondering if you could say a little bit about why happiness and also what, what is it about these particular types of topics that are so important in the way that you present the Dharma? It's fun for one thing, you know, have the virtues Pema Chodron sort of covers fear and insecurity, and Bob Thurman has that book on anger. And I think, well, yeah, I'll take the positive qualities. Well, I think I was motivated a little differently for each one. For loving kindness, I had been teaching that kind of meditation, and it actually wasn't all that well-known or popular in this country, and people were much more geared toward insight and wisdom, and that's good, of course. But I think there were a lot of misunderstandings about what we really do in loving-kindness practice. And so many people thought it was kind of phony and just this veneer that you put on top of maybe some very seething, difficult feelings and you're pretending and it's kind of awful. And I wanted to break through some of that and really offer people what I think it can do, which is so transforming and, and really quite revolutionary, hence the subtitle, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness for loving kindness and then with faith I really wanted to redeem the word and take it away from the kinds of either experiences or suppositions people were were making where so many people equated faith with being silenced and not being able to ask questions and having to just adhere to a dogma or a set of beliefs and I wanted to help create an understanding of faith which was much more vital and alive and moving and changing and and dynamic and so with happiness I mean maybe there's a little bit of that as well so many times people equate happiness with happy-go-lucky and there's that bumper sticker somewhere which says something like if you're not depressed you're not paying attention but if you are depressed you also have very little energy obviously and very little feeling of an ability to give or share or offer because our energy is imploding and, and we're so frozen. And, and it's so challenging to have that sense of depletion or a sense of depletion and still be engaged in a, a productive and creative way. And so I see happiness as almost like resourcefulness, inner resiliency, um, a sense of inner abundance, out of which we actually can offer tremendously to the world. So it's not really as selfish as we might imagine and not as sort of petty or trivial like 
yeah, I'm happy, who cares about anyone else, or I think I'll go have a happy day now meditating and be totally cut off from the woes of the world. It's not really like that. And it was interesting, too, I, I noticed there's one statistic that was early in the book that really it popped out at me, and it was something like in 2007 there was a, the CDC did a survey, and in the survey they found out 20 million people in America in the past year had tried meditation of some sort. And that's something almost like 10%. It's getting up there. And it's weird. As I was reading your book, I started to notice, even more so than your last books, there was really a much more accessible and almost non-sectarian or secular voice. And it seemed connected to that whole observation that there's so many people interested in those sort of practices and the benefits that can come from them. And it's so in our culture now, probably thanks in large part to the early teachers of Buddhism who kind of brought it in and got it seeped into the culture. And I wondered, is your own teaching evolving in a way or changing in a way that acknowledges that and tries to reach out to that? And if so, what's the cause of that shift? Mm -hmm. Well, I often say that I'm of the generation of, I guess you'd say, spiritual seeker, where I came back from India in 1974. I'd gone in 1970, and I had come back in between those, you know, that time. But I went back and finally came back in 1974. And I'd be at a party or some social situation, and somebody would say to me, what do you do? And I'd say, I teach meditation. And they'd go, oh, and kind of sidle away, like, that's weird. Whereas now, the most common response I get, even going through customs or something like that, where somebody will say, what do you do? I'll say, I teach meditation. And they'll say, I'm so stressed out. I could really use you. Or my favorite response, which I also get, is my partner should really meet you. <laughs> you know, so it's a very different world. I think largely due to, you know, the pioneering efforts of John Kabat-Zinn and people taking qualities like mindfulness out of the more Buddhist, esoteric context. And it's like a giant translation effort to take those methods and values and make them real for us in our language and and the research and so on. And, you know, you and I just heard the Dalai Lama this morning, mm-hmm. who was, as far as I could tell, because uh, it was hard to hear where I was sitting, was talking about secular ethics at one point and talking about basic human values and using science rather than religion as a basis for how we treat ourselves and one another. And that's a very beautiful expression of possibility because as he often says there are only so many people who adhere to religious belief but there might be countless more people that want a good life Mm -hmm. and so finding different bases for that is very important and I do think it's reflected in a certain kind of movement in my life certainly in the beginning when most of my teaching was in an intensive retreat format. That obviously means a certain commitment and willingness to take a risk and leaving home and ability to leave home, leave work, and go to Barry, Massachusetts or some other place and be willing to be silent and not get phone calls except in emergencies and not get mail and 
it takes a, a degree of determination and interest and inspiration and and it's not a circumstance everyone can afford or will gravitate towards and over time I still teach intensive retreats almost always in Barry at IMS at the Insight Meditation Society but I teach other retreats with other people from other traditions or even if I'm teaching with people in my tradition it may be shorter retreats not always silent that may be more accessible I teach a lot of classes I teach a lot of day longs workshops things like that mm. so it seems like even in the form that you're teaching it's really adapted to this different approach of being more accessible and more for like the person who wants a good life but who's not necessarily a Buddhist per yeah. se yeah, well, I think that actually matches my own early teachers, so it feels like a continuation in a way. My first teacher was S.N. Goenka, and I had never meditated before. I walked into that my first retreat, which was a 10-day retreat. I hadn't meditated for one single second before in my life when I walked past those monastery gates into that compound, and that first night of the retreat, he said something like, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism, the Buddha taught a way of life, which really, that was my first night. And so that was the foundation. It was like my foundational understanding of what I was about to do. And then my second teacher was a man named Manindra, and he said to me one day, in a way that I often find a little hard to explain, but... He said, the Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddha's problem. Now you solve yours. And it actually was a very kind thing to say because it felt almost like the first time in my life someone was looking at me as though to say, you know, you can solve your problem. You can solve the problem of the confusion and unhappiness that has brought you here to India to begin with. You can do that. And it made me realize it was about me. And that doesn't mean something selfish or arrogant or conceited. It has to be about each one of us. Otherwise, it's just deferring. Like, well, it's fine for the Buddha sitting under a tree 2,500 years ago. Like, I can't do it, which isn't the point of Buddhism. It violates the whole spirit of Buddhism, which is not supposed to be a monument to the Buddha, but about our own living capacity, each one of us, for freedom. And so... I often say when we look at a Buddha statue, when we look at an image of the Buddha, it's almost like a transparency, because when we look at the Buddha, we're really looking at ourselves. We're looking at a capacity for boundless love and compassion, a capacity for wisdom and insight, a capacity for freedom. And it's not just ourselves. Any one of us is a single individual. We're really seeing all sentient beings in that moment, because we share that capacity. So. We look at the Buddha to see ourselves, and we look at ourselves to see all beings, and that's really the nature of it. And for me personally, it's a challenge to find another language and to be able to express these things to a wider variety of, of people, and that also makes it more creative. Like, what do you say when you can't say, the Buddha said, <laughs> and you actually kind of want to say what the Buddha said? but in a different way. That's really cool. And there's another dimension, too, that I picked up on both in mm -hmm. your writing and also in your basic your life, which is 
that you also seem to be not only teaching in a more accessible way or in a way that that makes sense to people, but you're also doing a lot of projects and doing a lot of things that bring these sort of things out into the world in a way that I would imagine some of your early teachers weren't doing and that it was a little bit different than the traditional role of a teacher or of a Dharma teacher. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about that because there's some teachers that really do go out and do more of the quote-unquote engaged activity. I wanted to ask you how that's come about, Mm -hmm. if it's a natural thing, if there's something that shifted for you, just kind of where that motivations come from as well. Usually I actually find the big changes in my life that way come naturally, as you said, or just spontaneously, like I'll meet somebody and they'll say, would you be interested in this? And if I say yes, it's intuitive and not strategic, not thinking, what's this going to look like in three years if I go down this road? My mind just doesn't work that way. And so I'm much more responsive to people and inspiration in that way, kind of intuition as it arises. And so there were various times that that's happened for me, that I've gotten some kind of invitation that has brought me into another world, like through the Garrison Institute, the world of domestic violence shelter workers, who are the frontline workers dealing with terrible stories each day and sometimes very unrelenting realities. Sometimes I think about people like that, like they're holding the society together and people don't even know about how important they are and certainly they're uncelebrated and unheralded and underpaid and under-resourced and all of that and so the Garrison Institute did this pilot program about bringing the tools of meditation and yoga to them and and it was fantastic for me and hopefully for them (laughs) and uh, because it was certainly a a population that was very diverse, multiracial, different ages, with a tremendous sense of service, often extremely stressed out, burnt out. I learned a lot about vicarious trauma and the kinds of traumatization that people working with people who are traumatized often experience, and a lot about resiliency, kind of extraordinary human capacity for resiliency. It was a time that would be an example of it being inappropriate to be saying the Buddha said, and this technique, according to the Buddha, (laughs) will do this and that. And so it was both challenging and, and really tremendous. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. 
For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.